2026. That's the year that the MTA will likely have spent all of its one-time COVID federal aid, and by then it should have addressed its estimated $2.5 billion annual structural operating deficit, which that federal aid now is covering. The importance of the MTA cannot be overstated. It's the lifeblood of our economy, and it is key to our economic recovery. Fact is, the MTA already had operating budget deficits and capital infrastructure challenges. And this pandemic and recession has had deleterious effects on the system to date and will for years to come. Revenues from depressed ridership are way down and the needed acceleration of capital investment hasn't happened. There's much to be done. And that sits in the hands of the MTA's leadership. We were fortunate to recently sit down for a fireside chat with Jano Lieber, then acting but now legislatively confirmed CEO and chair of the MTA. We discuss ridership and the rider experience, the newly proposed interborough transit line and infrastructure state of good repair needs, and how labor management collaboration is critical to closing the operating budget gaps. We hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we enjoyed the conversation. To watch a video of the Fireside Chat, please visit our website, cbcny.org. And of course, be sure to tune in soon to our next episode of What's the Data Point? Back with our co-host, Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Take care, New York. Dano, it's great to see you. Hi. Sorry for the slight hiccup. No problem. No problem. I'm sure your train was on time. The train was on time. My uh, my ability to monkey with my PowerPoint, although it's <laughs> so anyway, I'm thrilled to be with this group. It's uh, it's always a treat to talk to folks who really take the stuff this stuff so seriously. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, tell us your assessment of kind of what's on the ground right now. How's your staffing level and how's it affecting services? It's, it's good. You know, listen, we are obviously just like the rest of the world. And I'm a, we, we had a, a staffing issue coming out of, uh, of, of the whole period of COVID coming into this fall, um, which was, you know, not atypical. But what happened is that we had to fr- freeze hiring during COVID until we knew we had the bucks coming from Washington, that was responsible. But the consequence is that attrition caught up with us and we were short staffed in key operating positions. We have, and the credit goes to the, you know, the, the team at New York City Transit. The railroads um, were okay in, in solid shape in terms of staffing, but New York City Transit had these staffing shortfalls in key positions like train operators, bus operators, and conductors. And training those folks takes a while. So they came up with a series of strategies that were actually working really well right through December, basically inviting retirees back, um, doing some overtime, but also incentivizing people to put off vacations um, and working with the union on redeployment so that we were getting the right number of people on different lines. We fought our way back to what we called 90 between 93 and 94% of full service, of full pre-COVID service with those series of strategies. But then Omicron came and it, and in the last week of December, we were down 10% of 11% of our workforce. The, the trend has reversed though. Uh, and now we're down about 6% of our workforce. And we're actually planning now to start restoring uh, those, you know, so the line, we suspended a couple lines, which are, I, I won't call them redundant, but they duplicate routes um, that are available. And all of our 472 stations are being served, but we, 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 we uh, suspended a couple lines that were not as uh, central to people being able to get around, but we're, talk, we're, we're starting to talk about putting them back in action starting next week. So the, the trend is reversed. It's a good sign for the city. But we were never the airlines. There was no catastrophic, uh, uh, chaotic breakdown of normal service. And we carried everybody. There's a lot less ridership, unfortunately, during Omicron. Um, and, and service was you know, re- reasonably strong. So um, the good news is we're back in action. And we now have to fight our way back to where we were before um, uh, Omicron, which was you know, we were north of 60% of, of ridership. And this is obviously key for the region and supporting the region's recovery and, you know, inter- of a special interest to this group, getting the MTA on back on solid financial footing. So, you know, we, we lost a little ground, but 
we're ready to get back at it. And speaking of financial footing, one of the challenges, and there are a bunch of chickens and eggs here, is you need to bring ridership back. It's a challenge because people are um, engaged in remote work, um, but there's also the rider experience, which, you know, with the needs for cleanliness, the issues about um, safety, health safety, discussions about, you know, public safety, um, it's been a it's been a challenge, and I will when I say discussions about public safety, there is the reality and the perception, and you yeah. confront both of those. Could you speak a little about the rider experience and what you're doing in terms of COVID and disorder and cleanliness? All these issues are challenges. It's a it's a great question. You know, um, th- at the beginning of COVID, before we understood as much as we do now about the the the, the science of transmission. There was a lot of, a, you know, obviously a lot of focus on tactile transmission. And we began that program of disinfecting cars every night, which was an amazing accomplishment, you know, given the scale, the size of the fleet and the bus fleet, um, you know, several thousand cars and of uh, 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 railroad cars and, uh, you know, 7,000 buses and doing it every night. Um, it turned out that people like it and it gives them great comfort and you know as we're trying to bring people back it gives people a sense of comfort and cleanliness which is obviously you know human psychology being what it is we want people to feel like they're coming into an enclosed space it's really clean and that has benefit so we've continued to do that that is being paid for mostly andrew by federal money and so one of the questions that we have to confront is when the fema money for that operation runs out um, as it at will at some point, what do we, you know, what do we do? So we're, we're getting through that right now. But the bigger issue, which you're alluding to, is safety and security and the perception of safety and security. Overall numbers of crime in the subway are down in the near term, and they're down over the, over the, the longer trajectory as well. In fact, we have, in terms of what the, what the PD called, the NYPD called major crimes, we're actually at a 30-year low. But in the last year or two, there's been an increase in aggravated assault and a lot of these high profile subway pushing episodes, which, you know, obviously any New Yorker, you know, a lot of New Yorkers, this is a phobia issue, right? You know, someone's going to push me on the tracks. Um, and we, what we, I was asking the NYPD for some time before the switch in administrations, can you get your cops off the mezzanines, and we, we love our NYPD, but you know, if you use the system, you see a lot of cops on the mezzanine by the entrances, and we would like them to be on the platforms and on the trains where riders need reassurance and the perception of safety. So with the change in administration, that is, that it's not just more cops that you know, Mayor Adams has suggested that he's, he's gonna deploy people from topside into the subways, as part of a broader strategy, but they're also working with us on this issue of where the presence is felt, where the deployments are visible. And I think that's gonna be a huge benefit to our effort to kind of bring people back. What we found is that we did a survey of 125,000 riders and safety and security were by far the highest issue, but it was even higher for the folks we call lapsed riders, the people who have stopped riding during the pandemic. So. Um, we got to keep going on that and, uh, and so on. So I'm going to provide a little update on where we are, what, do, what we're doing well, and highlights of what we have to accomplish. Obviously, we have some challenges. And this organization is truly, you know, a historic leader in highlighting the, the, the MTA's importance to New York, importance to our economy, our culture, our, our vitality and especially to connecting people to jobs and education, healthcare, and creating opportunity. Um, that importance has become much clearer during the pandemic. And because the MTA kept full service running when ridership was at its nadir in the spring of 20, and we've kept full service going on the subways and in the buses and virtually full service on the commuter railroads as we move back up the scale from 10 to 20, and now just before Omicron to 60% of pre-COVID ridership. Another thing that we're proud of, and I've talked to you about it, Andrew, is that during the pandemic, we kept all of the capital projects, which had been started before the pandemic, we kept them all going. 
Um, I think we never had more than 10% of the projects stop in the spring of 20, and all of them um, were well underway by the summer of 2020. And, and once we got, we knew we had the money coming from Washington, the COVID relief uh, funds, uh, uh, bills, we actually had kickstarted the capital program and began doing extraordinary amount of work. This year that we just wrapped up, we had, I think, one of the best years in MTA history in terms of awarding new capital program uh, projects. I think we're going to exceed $8 billion, which is a very high number for the MTA. But the success has come at a cost. And as everybody, I think, folks on this call, on this uh, uh, webinar know, we have a fiscal cliff just over the horizon. The financial impact of COVID, lower ridership, lower revenues. At one point, we were losing $200 million a week relative to budget. As a result of that, we we're staring at a substantial structural deficit, amounting projected to be $2.5 billion in 2025, just a couple of years from now. And that's if we don't borrow additional money through the federal municipal liquidity facility, which is something obviously I don't want to do being a New Yorker who lived through the fiscal crisis of the 1970s, prompted in part by borrowing for operating funds. So, um, as I, you know, the deficit is exacerbated by COVID-19, but, you know, a portion of it is, stems from, uh, you know, gaps, the fact that we had a couple of years of out-of-balance budgets um, that were filled by one-shots, and that's not a good thing, um, that, we, you know, obviously we don't want to, uh, uh, we don't want to continue. And it's that, that comes even though we have, since 2011, this is important, the MTA has not been sitting around letting these structural deficits grow. There has been a concerted effort to cut recurring costs out of the operating budget. And there's been three and a half billion of recurring costs cut out of the operating budget. But it, um, we still have, um, you know, a significant deficit um, even with the regular small fair and toll increases in place since 2010. Expenses, principally labor costs, have continued to grow much faster than revenue. It's not a secret that our, uh, our, our labor settlements with our unions have uh, been in the 2.5% per year range for a couple of contracts and on average, and that we're raising fares about 2% a year. That catches up with you. Obviously, I'm preaching to the converted here. Um, you know, I, this is what the CBC has done a ton of research on on its own. Um, but I'm, you know, obviously you guys understand the scale and the complexity of the problem. So addressing that structural gap isn't going to be easy, but we have to come up with a plan now while we still have a lifeline from these one-shot infusions uh, that the federal COVID relief money is providing. Okay. Um, I'm just starting to attack the operating budget issues. You know, honestly, we're, uh, you know, this is, you know, early days in terms of trying to address that, but I do have a bit of a track record on capital costs. New York, on the capital side, New York is never going to be cheap in construction, but working with a board staff working group, Scott Reckler, who's the chairman of the RPA, was part of it, that we came up with a, a, a series of strategies that are already making a positive impact on the MTA's competitiveness and our ability to get decent pricing. We developed, um, we, we changed all the contracts, we made them uniform, which is a good thing for attracting more competition. So we didn't have different contracts with different agencies. We also attacked a lot of those dumb provisions that were causing contractors to charge us premiums. Like for example, the habit of insisting that the MTA alone get to decide any contract disputes. Contractors obviously threw a huge cost premium on that one contract provision alone. We're making it a principle in our, our contracts that um, the party who has controls a risk um, is responsible, is accountable to manage those risks and has financial exposure. So things like providing outages for a contractor. The MTA used to say to the contractor, We'll let you do work on the track at this day. And then you show up with your, your, your staff and your equipment and your logistics 
and the MTA cancels the outage, it's on the contractor's dime. That's insane. We would never do that in the private sector. So we are allocating risk appropriately and you know, the responsibility for delays, the removal of hazardous materials, that is getting us better pricing. We're providing a huge focus on the incentives and disincentives for schedule performance. We're, uh, as I said, making our, our contracts more consistent across the MTA, to, which is attracting more competition and decustomizing design. MTA you know, and public agencies frequently have a habit of over-customizing their design, which ends up costing you a ton. We're using design build, which is, as we all know, eliminates conflicts between the designer and the, the, the construction contractor, and also gives you a chance to benefit from creativity in how to make projects more efficient. When the, when the builder and the designer are collaborating, that you get those, um, those benefits in terms of cost and scheduling from innovation and creativity. And where we're not using design build, and I still think that we're asking to ask the legislature to raise the threshold where we're required to use design build. We are using what we call A plus B bidding, where the contractors are being told not just to bid on price, but also on schedule and how much MTA support resources they need. And that has already delivered us huge uh, cost and schedule uh, benefits in the biddings that we've just done the last year. Um, and we've improved our project management. I'm not going to go into detail, but suffice it to say, when I showed up at the MTA, there, it wasn't clear who was in charge of a project. So now we have a project CEO who is accountable for budget and schedule and solving all the problems. Next slide. Um, we have seen very positive results on the projects where we use some of these new practices. Uh, what we call the 42nd Street Connector. We did the Times Square shuttle and redoing the entire Grand Central mezzanine. When you walk in Grand Central, the ceiling is still low, but everything about it is bigger. It's got a lot more space. It's a, it's a lot more humane. We, fit, we redid all the escalators and the elevators in there. And it, it, the project, which was something you know, added up to like a billion dollars, it was being done as eight separate projects. We brought it together and it was completed on time and on budget. Go ride the shuttle. It's ADA accessible for the first time, and it's just a much better service. The L train project that was you know, got so much attention was completed in April 2020, saved $100 million, and it was months uh, ahead of schedule. Um, Long Island Railroad third track, which met folks in this group may or may not be aware of, it's a $2.5 billion project to expand the Long Island Railroad mainline. Newsday's been talking about it since 1947. Um, we did started that project. It's on budget. It's on schedule. We, you know, eliminated grade crossings all through the center of Long Island, where people used to be, you know, crazy folks were driving across, and uh, uh, you know, huge accidents were taking place, and a ton of other work. And the project had enough contingency, unspent contingency left over, that we we took a hundred million dollars from it and gave it to the Penn Access, the Metro North Penn Access project, and the bids that we are getting. In the, you know, in 2021, are starting to show, you know, they're below what we call engineers' estimate, which is a good sign. You know, too early to declare victory. New York is never going to be cheap, but I believe we're making real progress on capital. But back to the operating side. Next slide. Now we have to have a, a similar approach. Now, there's some obvious places to start. We the the first thing that I have asked the team to do is to focus on, you know. Uh, efficiency-oriented provisions in our labor contracts to see whether we, that we got in bargaining, and it's not clear that we always take full advantage of those. So in effect, you pay for them in the contract negotiations, and then we don't really harvest all the benefits. So I'm focusing on that first. I've asked the team to like go back and look at into all of the labor contracts to see where the efficiency opportunities are. That is a slight change from how the MTA and public agencies generally do bargaining. Generally, they only bring to the table issues have been raised in the last several rounds. I'm saying I'm going clear blue sky. I want to look at everything and bring issues to the table that could save us money. We have especially to focus on maintenance costs. Our, the analytics that have been done, and we did some recently for the legislature, showed that the maintenance of especially the commuter railroads is incredibly high relative to peers nationally and internationally. There are some 
understandable reasons for this. The fact that we have a really old fleet to maintain it relative to you know, the national and international standards, and that we have both electric and diesel systems. So we're maintaining all these different systems. When you go to the 207th Street yard uh, of the New York City Transit Authority, because they have so many different car classes, they are literally making the parts. You cannot buy them. In many cases, the car manufacturers, the rolling stock manufacturers are out of business. So it's, there are some reasons that maintenance is expensive. And we are modernizing the fleet and technology is allowing us to become more proactive in maintenance so that you know, those systems that tell you when a, a part or a system in a, in a complex vehicle is starting to get problems, um, that will help us. But we do need to attack this problem of maintenance costs. We also need to be more attentive to how our service patterns could be made more efficient cost-wise. You know, when you look at you know, running rush hour service, there's a lot of deadheading. So you put a crew on a train and then they spend time sitting in a crew room or deadheading back to another location. I'm asking the teams to re-examine re service so that we can make more efficient use of our crews. And the, finally, we have to attack, I think the most troubling trend I've seen at all is the decline of what we call availability. Availability tracks how many days um, uh, a staff person is available per year. So the standard is 260 days, five times, uh, uh, you know, five times uh, 52. Um, and this is how many days of workers actually show up after deducting for vacations, days off, sick days, injury days. And the trend is troubling. In 2014, out of those 260 weekdays, transit workers um, showed up or, or worked an average 207 days. By 2019, this figure was down to 197. So you right there, you have basically a 5% decrease in availability, and then you have to pay overtime to other folks to fill the gap. Um, a lot of this decline is specifically attributable to workers' comp. From 2010 to 2019, the annual average number of days transit workers were unavailable for workers' comp reasons went from 2.65 per year to 6.84, like 160 plus percent increase. So you can see what the workers' comp system has done to transit efficiency. Next. People sometimes ask, why not use the congestion pricing for the operating budget? I think you know the legislature required the congestion pricing go to the capital program, and it is critically needed. We have a, a trillion dollar asset that, you know, it sounds like a lot of money to invest 10 billion a year in capital, but we have a trillion dollar asset and any, by any standard, the, the, putting that in state of good repair, you need to make significant investments even beyond where we are now. We're, we've got obligation to deliver these exciting equity-oriented projects like Metro North Penn Access using the Hellgate line uh, in the Bronx, uh, not only for 25 Amtrak trains a day, but for 150 Metro North trains a day, which will turn the East Bronx away from being a transit desert and give people access to jobs both North and South. Second Avenue subway phase two, people can poke at the construction costs, and I'm, I'm number one on this list, but that community has been promised uh, uh, you know, uh, rail service since the 1940s, since they knocked down the elevated trains. And um, we need to make good on that commitment. It is a, the most transit dependent community in New York. And they, you know, they really do need that. Um, we are opening Eastside Access and Third Track in 2022. We started Penn Access, we awarded that contract. And as the governor announced, we're starting to study the so-called Interborough Express it's going to be a new connector between Brooklyn and Queens. So a better MTA is within reach. Um, you know, I, I'll close by saying a lot of what I'm trying to do is informed by my experience, my enthusiasm for these crazy challenges where folks are giving up on New York and starting to think that we can't overcome. You know, part of the, the spirit of the downtown rebuilding was that we imagined that you could take that crisis and create a better version of downtown that existed before 9-11. And I do think that right here, we are ready to do it and that Build Back Better doesn't need to be just a political slogan. 
So thank you guys for listening and I'm happy to take more questions. Thanks, Jenna. That was a great overview. Appreciate it. I remind people um, to use the um, QA function and we'll get to as many questions as possible. And Jenna, why don't I start where you did in a second? I appreciated that slide. You know, anybody who likes budgets likes, likes um, graphs that show negatives or we don't like graphs that show negatives, but they represent reality. And of course, in February, you'll have that. I believe it's in February. You'll have 2026, which will look really bad because you'll see the two and a half billion dollars yeah. whole, you know, the simple world of budgets is you increase efficiency, you raise revenue, you cut, you know, you, you, you cut service. Um, what do you, as you look towards 25 and 26, what do you think you can do in those buckets? Um, and how do you think about the allocation of your solution? Well, I, the truth is I don't have an answer to the question of the exact numbers, but the combination, I think you've just outlined it is pretty self-evident. We need to become more efficient. I don't believe that we can cut our way out of this the budget deficit. I don't think that's realistic at the scale we're talking about. But we have an obligation to become more efficient. And you know that workers' comp and some of these other trends about productivity and availability ought to be attacked. Um, you know, directly, and, and we have to be forthright about it. We're, if, we're, if we're getting less efficient, we're paying more overtime because we, you know, our, 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 our workforce isn't showing up as much as they used to. We need, we need to do it. We need to do it, you know, both to close the budget. We also need it for credibility because the answer, I believe, is going to have to be an honest uh, discussion about transit service being considered more an essential service. It is as we found out during COVID, transit for New York is like police and fire and sanitation. It's the fundamental that makes the, the whole ecosystem possible where you bring people together to create value. Um, and you know, it, it is also, frankly, identity for New York City. It's not just functionality, it is identity. It is our, the place, the public space. It's the public square where New Yorkers meet each other and it's what part of what makes us attractive to tourists, right? Um, if you can't get around New York and you can't see a lot of different stuff when you come, you know, stay at a hotel here, it becomes a different, less attractive place. So, um, so I think, you know, what I've said to the legislature, I started saying it, okay, I'm not saying that you have to solve the whole problem this year, but we, we need to start talking about Changing the, the model and said New York, uh, the MTA is good because it has the highest fare box recovery ratio of any uh, mass transit system in America, which is what was said for many moons. And, and really be honest and say, you know, maybe this is something that the public sector has to invest in uh, a little bit more and not expect it all to come from the riders or reductions in service or some frankly, magical thinking about cutting costs, uh, you know, with, with, you know, so-called waste, fraud, and abuse reductions. That's not going to happen, as I think you guys know. Um, but we need the credibility of having to attack our own productivity um, ebbing. And um, you can see I'm starting to work on that. By, yeah. the, by, by, by the by, I didn't mention it. I, 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 we brought together a, a, a fellow who uh, some of you may know who was a former Bain partner for many years who ran the, uh, who was COO of city planning during the de Blasio administration, a guy named John Kaufman, to run what I call a strategic initiatives group, like an in-house consulting group that is focused on just attacking these issues and identifying um, where they are and how do we solve them. I think you're right to start on the efficiency side, both credibility, but, you know, it's hard, but there's a lot there. Um, yeah. and, and until you do that, you know, our CBC's position, of course, is the revenue should come after the efficiencies. Um, and so you're right to attack that now. And the federal aid gives you the glide path. Um, speaking of that, as you look through the contracts, and I see a question came in, so I'll, I'll hold off on some of it. There are things, forgetting this wait for interviews, and I, there's always a little there, but major changes. One of the issues that kind of combines efficiency with your current staffing issue is one person train operations. Is that the kind of thing that can come back on the table? It's been talked to about my memory might serve me wrong. It's 1967. We're one of the only systems in the world that runs how we do. Is that the kind of yeah. thing you're thinking? Yeah, listen, I mean, that, 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 that's probably the, the, you know, the most provocative single uh, efficiency uh, issue that 
you could go at. So I'm not sure anyone wants to start there. I think there is like I'm not taking a position against it, but I do think that there's an argument, you know, when you you see the you know, that a, a, a New York subway train in terms of the length and the number of people it has and the and the you know need for some you know visual um, uh, connectivity to what's going on uh, through the whole length of a platform that there are some meaningful you know, and important reasons for having two person operation. But, you know, we're not going to discount any um, reduction in cost or any efficiency issue, you know, offhand. Um, but there are a lot of other ways. I mean, these the percentages, you know, the small percentages really add up, Andrew, and think, think, uh, something at this scale. So I, th- I think you're right. All of it. As you talked about benchmarking, that was our last report. And we did a lot of that benchmarking, too. And uh, we've talked about that. I think that's the right um, approach. What about fair policy for a second? I know we've kicked the can down the road a little. CBC has taken the position that we should pair currently the current policy since I think it was 2009 with a city implementation of fair fares to address the affordability issue because I'm kind of thinking I can afford 15 cents a ride more. Um, what is your approach to fair policy this year? Do you think that the legislature and the governor should allocate some money so that it could be delayed longer, um, the, the fair increase that should have happened last year? or And what do you think going forward? So number one, you know, the delay in the fair, we're now, what, nine months into the delay on the fair increase. It was, it's a responsible business decision. You're not, you know, we got a lot of business people on the line now. The idea of raising the price when you're trying to get all your customers back, probably not a strategy that they teach at any of the major business schools. But uh, obviously, we all, we agree with you that the, that the uh, policy that's been in effect for the last 10 years since the Ravage Commission of small increases on a regular basis, on a predictable schedule basis, is a good one, and we would like to get back to it. The question is when. And the, the governor is obviously, uh, you know, has been supportive of the idea of delaying it. What I have said is we now have a fair increase that's scheduled to take place in our budget plan middle of this year. I, I sort of put the question to the governor and the legislature, do you, you know, do you want to uh, put that up further? And if so, it would require, you know, investing in the MTA's operating budget, uh, you know, some bucks. So, um, but, you know, I, I believe honestly starting next year is probably, I hope we'll be far enough along the curve of getting back our ridership that, you know, resuming that normal, predictable, moderate fare increase policy if only to keep us, you know, catching up to labor costs, because, you know, nobody's urging me to, to go to zero labor costs, right? So uh, I need the, the, the political class to, uh, to deal with the consequence on the fair side. Right, moving to construction, and then we'll take some questions that have been flowing in. Um, you have about $60 billion of projects from the old capital plans into the current one that are still outstanding. I'm not sure how much you've given that $8 billion that you hit last year. I mean, the original intention of the 2024 plan was to have that all done by 24, obviously. Um, COVID wasn't helpful, but it wasn't as harmful as you said, and you and you 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 um, shifted uh, and took the opportunities you could. But with about $60 billion, and as you said, a good year last year at $8 billion of throughput, that is a, a pretty long time. What's your approach to prioritization, and especially thinking about the trade-offs between capacity expansion and the modernization of state of good repair? Um, that obviously are necessary and CBC has always advocated should be a priority. Okay, well, two, two things. One is, um, you know, just, just to make sure the MTA doesn't get um, short shrift, you know, the, the, the 15 to 19 capital program wasn't funded until mid, mid-2016. So, you know, at this point, we're, I think, not, you know, 80, 90%, somewhere between 85 and 90% Award, contract awarded in what is essentially a five-year period. That is not, you know, a terrible underachievement. Okay, for the so the capital program for the prior program, um, the goal is to award the contracts within the five-year period, not to have them all be built. Otherwise, we would blow up the construction market, right? If we tried to put them out for procurement all at once and have them all built in four years or something, um, so not terrible. Um, we're 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 doing this in a pretty orderly way. I, you know, obviously, to get to the fifty billion, you need to be up from eight. 
But this was really the first year that we had the new design build procurement world that we were living in. Um, so I'm not unhappy with 8 billion, especially during the pandemic. Um, how do we prioritize? State of good, the first priority, and we made this when we were looking at, if God forbid, we had to cut the capital program during the bad days of COVID before Washington uh, started voting COVID relief money. We always prioritize the state of good repair, especially the safety sensitive state of good repair work. So that's tracks, it's the functionality of signals, it's the basic structure of the tunnels, it's the condition of the buses, you guys get it. You know, it's the ba that stuff is always frontline. Beyond that, a lot of the decisions that we make are not just which project would we like to do in which order, but it has to do with the status of design and uh, uh, for those projects, you know, some are need a little more design work, a little more time to be ready for um, marketing. And also, what are the most efficient bundles? One of the ideas that I have brought, my team has brought to the capital program is, you know, do organize the different packages of work in a way that makes sure that whenever you shut down the right of way, you're doing all the work that could benefit from that outage. So we're doing more of what we call bundling everything that's in a certain area. So that, Andrew, that creates its own prioritization scheme um, because you're trying to be as efficient as possible with your outages and work on multiple different projects on a single line, if that's responsible. Yeah, I think, um, and we'll, let, we'll turn to questions from our trustees now, but I do think we, the ongoing conversation that we've had, because that trade-off, as you say, there's a throughput issue and hopefully you're up from that $8 billion. But as we think about Second Avenue Subway, the um, governor's announcement of Interborough Rail and all those signaling track, rolling stock, you know, all, all that work, it is a legitimate concern that one trades off for another and we don't wanna be in a place where we came into these, this problem with, with the system breaking down and being more expensive. So, so but just one thing I would add to, you know, you, as you think this through, and you guys are sophisticated about this, there are other variables other than like, which do we prefer? Right now, the capacity of the manufacturers in the rail car uh, industry is pretty limited. You know, Kawasaki, who's you know, done a lot of work for the MTA over the years, Bombardier, who's done a lot of work for the MTA over the years, now owned by Alstom. Their, their, their capacity is limited. And the big player in rail cars is China. And for political reasons, that ain't happening. To New York, America, American uh, systems are not really, are being discouraged from, or basically pre prevented by Washington from buying these rail cars from China. So you know, th that in turn impacts the speed at which we can do resignaling, Andrew, because you know, the signaling and the car uh, uh, procurements go hand in hand. So there, I just want you to understand there are other variables rather than this Understood. abstract, uh, which you prefer, uh, you know, new or, or yeah. state of good repair. Understood. So let's turn to some questions. Alaire Townsend um, um, wrote me about, you know, the, the structural deficit and, and, you know, it's going to, we have a little glide path, but, and referred to CBC's report that um, identified 2.9 billion in efficiency savings, but a lot of it really re um, relies on working with labor. What can be done to make this happen? It's, it's front and center. We've talked about the challenges, but labor has to come to the table to do these things. And we, we think, as we've always argued, that um, workers deserve the raises, but we can't afford them unless we figure out um, how to um, increase these efficiencies. There are a lot of opportunities there. What can we do about this? I think that starting to talk about it openly in, you know, in a spirit of partnership, there's no animosity or rancor in, in my relationship with the, you know, the MTA's labor union. We have to be able to talk about it openly so that the legislatures and the folks who, who create the, you know, the, the environment in which these discussions have to take place understand more and you know, that there isn't kind of reflexive reversion to are you pro or anti-labor. This is, this is pro-labor because this is the only way we preserve a system that has 67,000 employees, right? right now, it used to be over 70,000, right? So we need to create an environment in which these issues are discussed without uh, the perception that somehow you're attacking labor by just being honest that workers' comp is driving costs out of sight. It, without being, you know, we're, it's not, we're not 
criticizing any individual by just noting that we're getting fewer and fewer days of work out of our, you know, our paying somebody for a whole year. We need to figure out how to do this. And it's in the interest of protecting the workforce and their economics, as well as, um, you know, the whole system. I think you guys get it. But I think yeah, yeah. having yeah. a discussion break out among folks like yourselves who are not anti-labor is really, really important. And I, you know, I welcome your role in that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Steve Poland. Um, wrote in that since the MTA was created, there's been an ebb and flow between having an independent board and chair, having a governor dominated institution. Steve's observation is that the pendulum has swung way too far over in the, in the past 10 years with the prior governor sometimes selecting managing staff, controlling dialogue with the legislature, and in some cases directing financial resources to political needs that might not have been agency priorities. So what is your um, view of the proper role of chair in terms of assuring the agency's independence as it was designed? Well, I, I appreciate that the come, the, this question comes from Steve Poland, who nobody ever was able to boss at all when he was the MTA general counsel. Um, but that's just a, a joke between us. Um, uh, look, I, listen, Kathy Hochul, Governor Kathy Hochul has been a pleasure to work with for me. Um, she has folks uh, with uh, you know, in, in, in Karen uh, Keough and, and Catherine Garcia and other folks who I work with who are real pros, who, you know, are interested in, you know, a super high functioning mass transit system and are supportive of everything I'm doing. So this has been an incredibly easy and positive transition for the MTA leadership and the management of our issues. You've seen that she pays a lot of attention to us. She's really interested in uh, in, in what, what we're doing and excited about it. Um, it's been, from my standpoint, incredibly positive. She's now made Elizabeth Velez, in a, you know, appointed Elizabeth Velez to the MTA board, uh, who's a great choice, who actually knows what it is to build for the MTA. She's a, you know, the head of an MWB construction company. She's the chair of the New York Building Congress. She's a New Yorker, and she's you know, literally worked with me on projects where she was on the selection panel. So the, the trend is very, very positive. I, I, you know, in the prior administration, the, from me, for me, it was, it was also fine because there was, you know, from the, in the Cuomo era, there was great enthusiasm for improvements in the capital area. And that's what I was doing at that time. So I don't really have much more to say about this, you know, hypothetical swing other than we're in a really positive place right now. And, uh, you know, I'm going to keep do as much as I can to take advantage of. Thank you. Thank you. Jim Milstein um, asks, and I think this is really important because sometimes with so many um, challenges, issues every day, it's, it's hard to think broadly. But Jim um, is smart in asking this, which is given the advent and rapid commercialization of autonomous vehicle and ride-sharing technologies, the opportunity for more efficient use of surface transportation networks that they create. How should the MTA's long-term planning change? All right, well, Milstein's a smart man. He may have stumped me on that one, but uh, he, fundamentally, we, we have a, you know, a, a long-term planning group that is looking at trends in all different ways. That's one of them. I won't say that we have, you know, the deepest uh, vision of or understanding of exactly what kind of a transportation world that is, those trends are going to produce. I, I, you know, personally, I think that in a world where our surface, we're doing congestion pricing because we need to prioritize uh, buses, emergency vehicles, uh, paratransit, delivery vehicles that support our, the new world in our economy. Um, I'm not obsessed with personally, but I may be a dullard, but I'm not obsessed with the fear that, that um, uh, autonomous vehicles in New York are going to make the MTA irrelevant. I think we have you know, such, tra you know, such capacity limitations on our surface street network um, that those other prioritized classes of vehicles um, will fill up that I don't, I don't personally see the challenge quite as, as urgently, but, you know, but I do have a, a bunch of people looking at it and I'm happy to have that discussion even more. Yeah, no, I think it's, 
it's important, especially as you think about system expansions, because these are long term. You know, I, I read, yeah. the, read the history of the Second Avenue subway um, from 1920 to today, the other day. Um, and, you know, these are long term changes in, in rapidly evolving technology. As we think about system expansion, you think, hold on a second. Will we be in another in another place? But speaking of this, I've gotten a couple of different questions about the status of congestion pricing. Yeah. So wh where we are is um, before it just coincided with, you know, when I got moved into the chair and when Governor Hochul came in, that I think we cleared up what what's going on with congestion pricing. Since the, the Trump administration obviously kicked the can again and again and again. Um, since Biden folks came in, our, the MTA, the state of New York DOT, and the city DOT. So even though Mayor de Blasio was sometimes poking at the pace, his DOT was deeply involved at every step of the way, which was a little frustrating. Um, we were negotiating with the Federal Highway Administration about what the environmental review process would be, what we were required to do to have a federally compliant what they call EA, Environmental Assessment uh, NEPA review process. And that negotiation ended in August. And we were able to say that it's a 20-month process and we're, uh, we're, we're going to be done by the end of 2023. We have kept to that schedule. We've done you know, all of these major uh, webinar outreach events that thousands of people have participated in. We have like 50,000 comments that have come in and all of that is now being turned into the first draft of the environmental assessment document, which will then be subject to additional analysis and public comment and adjustment. And then you will um, have uh, hopefully by the end of 23, keeping with the schedule, a final federal with the, the stamp of approval, what they call uh, you know, a, a, a record of decision proving that you have complied with the federal environmental law, which is required because a lot of these streets are federally funded and they have the power to approve tolling or not. Um, so it's all happening. We have, I believe, ended the mystery about whether the, the, the MTA was supporting congestion pricing and working to advance it because we are like all get at, we're working our tails off. Um, so uh, that is where it is. We expect that by the end of 23, we'll have that federal environmental review approval, God willing, and then there'll be implementation uh, in, yeah, is it the end of, am I losing my mind? Yeah, I think the implement, the, it's the end of 22. I'm sorry, at the end of 22, we get the approval and then the implementation takes place in 23, in 2023. Um, in the first half of 2023, we're actually, building the system out. Meantime, we have tested all the cameras and the back, you know, and, they, and the computer um, uh, systems that will, you know, track license plates and otherwise to distinguish different types of vehicles, yada, yada, yada. So all of that work has been done. All the modeling and the technical work has been done. And we're very much on schedule. There are some, you know, dramas yet to be resolved, including the, the question of, what discounts, what exemptions um, will be offered. Discounts and exemptions translate into a higher base fee. So, you know, if you're exempting a lot of classes of people and cars and vehicles and so on, you end up with a higher fee. That decision will be made by a traffic mobility review board established by the legislature, which is going to be impaneled probably in the next six months. Okay, yes, I was going to suggest, you know, parallel processing is always good for efficiency and there are fights to come, as you know, CBC recommends limiting those because both um, they increase the uh, fares on uh, the, the, the fee on everyone else and it's a slippery slope. And yeah, you have challenges ahead with many groups, including our neighboring state of New Jersey. Um, our, Jay Badami was asking, are you using project labor agreements on construction? Not yet, but... Um... One of the areas where I think that we, we do need is, I, I, you know, I think that we need, um, there is increasing interest, and in, Jay knows this stuff, in Washington, in having local hiring uh, preferences, which, you know, obviously run afoul of our, our union hall hiring process in some way. Um, we may need some project labor agreements to address that issue so that we can 
you know, we can do more local hiring, especially in black and brown communities, um, as we're doing more building there. But there are, um, the, the, the project labor agreements haven't, you know, New York is a union town and our work is, is prevailing wage, generally union. Um, Jay knows that because, you know, he eats at that trough. Um, and, uh, um, you know, we haven't had to do PLAs. I mean, I generally, you know, the, 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 on these mega projects, I want, you know, I want to make sure that we're always getting drug and alcohol testing and some of the things that project labor agreements have produced, anything that produces efficiency and safety and so on. But uh, so far, that hasn't been necessary. And I know we're at time. Do you mind bleeding over three or five minutes? No, no, I'm, 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 I'm in okay. good shape. I, I mean, the at your disposal for a little while longer. The questions keep flowing over, and I'm sorry for everyone, but I think there's great interest in so many, so many questions. People, um, um, and I should have said that Judy Temmel was one of the first ones to ask about congestion pricing. So sorry, I, I didn't mention that. Um, Peter Cipriani, Cipriano, sorry, Peter, um, asking about dynamic tolling. And we could also say with fares, because now you have technology, given the apparent COVID-driven shift from transit to auto in our region, is there a case for the MTA to move more aggressively to reach bridge and tunnel tolls? Could dynamic tolling be considered, for example? Uh, you know, all of our tolling system, our tolling policy is like fair policy. You know, you have to run it through a very uh, comprehensive system of, uh, uh, of, you know, public hearings and so on and so on. Um, I don't know that we have yet tried to do that. I think that that has to be looked at in tandem with what the congestion pricing system is going to be. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, th I think that there will be a place for that question, especially as the Traffic Mobility Review Board looks at pricing for the, uh, for the congestion pricing uh, system. Yeah, and, and, you know, we urge different, you know, times of day pricing versus dynamic, um, which changes and, and may not necessarily give the, um, the user the choice, the time to make that choice. So it's, there are yeah. varieties of flavors and we, we would urge those. Um, um, Karim Hudson was talking about um, ridership and, and, and return. And I, I skipped the question before, and so I'm glad to see Karim, thank you for asking. Is it reasonable to expect pre-COVID ridership to return? What level of ridership are you projecting in a steady state and, and, and what does that mean financially? So it's a good question because so much hinges on just that. None of us has a crystal ball. We, pre, we did it very early on. I, I initiated a study when I you know, was still doing construction development, but I got going a study with McKinsey trying to project where the, you know, the pandemic um, and the, frankly, the economic collapse of the region, um, how that would all work into our ridership and, you know, develop scenarios for recovery. Um, we did that study in, in the spring and early summer of 2020. Um, we updated it in the fall. And until Omicron, it had kind of held accurate, you know, um, surprisingly, it, it had been pretty, ended up being pretty accurate. So it, what it projected was, and we were using, we're using it in our budgeting. Um, it projected that we would be, it would take a couple of years for us to get back to um, across the board about 85 to 90% of total revenues where the subways and the buses were roughly at about 90% of pre-COVID ridership and the railroads were at, you know, from a revenue standpoint, we're about 80% of pre-COVID ridership. So that was a projection based on, again, epidemiology, economic forecasting, but also taking into account this idea that hybrid work was here to stay. The interesting thing is we were at 60 plus percent before Omicron on the subways, but office occupancy is still what? It was 25 to 30%. So it shows that in a couple of things, one, that, that it's not only office commuting that drives MTA ridership, um, and that's a good thing. But the other thing that was interesting is that our, our, our discretionary ridership, nights and weekends, was much higher. So people weren't coming into the office as much, but they were going to Broadway, they were going to nightlife, the weekend travel was in the low to mid-70s versus pre-COVID, so very positive. So where people have somewhere to go, 
they are choosing mass transit. They're comfortable going back to mass transit, broadly speaking. We just need people back in offices to, you know, bounce back the, um, the, the, the peak hour ridership. But even the peaks were coming back. So there was positive signs. Now, where are we now after Omicron? Remains to be seen. But that's where the trajectory we were on. And, you know, it was a positive sign, broadly speaking. It's good to see. But, yeah, whatever. Ridership is, is, is a huge chunk of your revenues. And so just give me a, a, a sense. Can you remind us for every 5% or 10% of ridership on the subways, what, what does that mean in terms of your fare box revenue? Um, well, okay. I don't mean to put we, you on the spot. That should yeah, be. I mean, I, I do the math. And, um, I, my, my abacus is standing by, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but you, you, you know, this, I mean, do the math, you know, our, our, our half of our revenue, eight to $9 billion comes from the fare box. Right. So, um, and we were at 9 million passengers. I mean, we were 9 million, 8 million, uh, subway bus and commuter rail passengers a day before COVID. So, you know, do the math. It's the numbers are huge. When we were when we were at the bottom of COVID, we were down ninety percent on the subways and the buses, ninety percent on the subways, and ninety five on the commuter rail, and we were losing two hundred million dollars a week. Yeah, that's 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 incredible. Um, Walter Harris um, was asking. There are many insurance issues that raise costs. Yes. Um, Will the MTA push the legislature to implement reforms to bring New York insurance construction costs in line with other states? So um, I'm doing it. We're in the middle of doing a very big study of MTA's uh, insurance construction insurance situation. The you know the uh, the, the cost of construction insurance, our so-called OSIP, Owner Controlled Insurance Program, has like more than doubled over the last seven or eight years. It's partly market, um, but it may also be partly the way MTA manages projects and procures insurance and many other things that Walter knows a hell of a lot more about than I do. Um, he's one of the premier uh, insurance experts around. Um, so I'm doing a major study of that, trying to figure out how the MTA alone and by advancing certain policies in the legislature could uh, arrest that increase in costs. You know, obviously the scaffold law, which is New York's um, one of a kind um, negligence uh, law, you know, that, that puts an owner at risk of having to pay for all damages due to any fall whatsoever from so-called height could be step um, is, you know, is cite, frequently cited, but I don't think that's the, you know, th that's the only thing that is driving our insurance. And I would, so I would really like to focus on all the things that are driving our insurance costs. And are there a series of policies that we can adopt or uh, uh, legislative initiatives we can go to the legislature with? It's not just let's have, you know, round 62 of the fight over the scaffold law. So I'm trying to look at it broadly. I, I think you're right. It's frustrating on the scaffold law because whether it's, you know, um, hurting your budget or developing affordable housing, you know, yeah. the limitations on things we really need to do. That's the frustration. Um, but we'll continue to fight that. But I'm, I'm glad you're looking at that broader. Um, so one question from Neil Weissman, and then I'll, I'll wrap up with a quick personal one. Um, now that Governor Hochul has signed S4943BA6235B, what steps can the MTA take to enhance bike um, pedestrian uh, bike um, access across its seven bridges? Well, we've done, I mean, there's been $150 million spent in the last five years on bike and pedestrian access across M those MTA bridges. And, um, and we're, we're, we're doing, uh, and I, I'm happy to you know, send you a little more detail on it, but because I don't have it right in front of me, well, we are doing a fair amount of work to, um, enhance bike and pedestrian access, you know, on the RFK, on the Henry Hudson Bridge, on a lot of different bridges. The one that gets, um, you know, the, the my friends in the bicycle, uh, uh, you know, advocacy community um, agitated is the Verrazano, where there isn't, there historically has not, has not been a walkway. Um, 
it is it, that, you know, the Verrazano is, uh, you know, you have to live within rush hour constraints. The, 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 the way it is configured, there's some very awkward and dangerous uh, traffic choreography um, that makes it hard just to like grab a lane away, not to mention the fact that, um, you know, the, the principal users of the Verrazano for much of the uh, express bus um, from, for, for much of the, the peak hour are express buses. So it is a mass transit facility, uh, you know, operating mass transit facility, although we don't think of our, our bridges quite that way. Um, but Staten Island is so dependent on express buses, that's a big issue not to suppress express bus usage and availability. But we're, we're, listen, we're, I'm an enthusiast for this stuff. And we are obviously, we've grown our bike ridership during COVID um, and we are big supporters of it. Um, but, you know, there's, there's some real, like literally some engineering complexities that we're trying to figure out to see how we can do even more. Listen, you are in charge of one of the most visible, important public services that there is. And it, you, we haven't even talked about resiliency and what you need to add to the capital plan. Yeah. Many ideas about um, labor efficiencies and we'll continue those conversations among us. We're always here to help. I just wanna leave with one last question because you've been around New York a long time and it is one of the most visible and used public services. You have a lot of friends. How many emails a day do you get from your friends with helpful suggestions based on their experience that morning's commute? <laughs> Uh, you know, it's not as many as you think. Uh, mo most of my, my friends have what, what we in Brooklyn call Rachmanis. They have a little pity for somebody who has to listen to everybody's commuting woes. Um, but listen, you know, it, it, one of the things that's fun about this, and I know everybody on the line gets this, is this is a part of New York that everybody cares about. You know, the, the honor, the chance to work on something which is so much in everybody's heart who's a passionate New Yorker and everybody gets how important it is to the city. Um, that's a real privilege. So if you're interested in public service and you're interested in New York, you know, what, you know, uh, it feels like uh, I won the golden ticket. Now, you know, some of my friends say you got us during, you know, during the financial crisis of the NPA and COVID and a lot of complicated stuff, but, um, but it, it, it just feels like a great opportunity. It's fun to work with people on this line, and especially you and your teammates. Well, John, thank you very much today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.